I am so excited about today's episode. I invited my friend Rebecca Mowry to chat on the podcast. She is a wildlife biologist who focuses on big game for Montana's Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Department, the state agency of Montana. And I invited her to come on because I thought she would be a great person to talk to about working in the government. And also, we've been Facebook friends for a long time, and I keep seeing these really cool photos of bighorn sheep, mountain goats, elk, all popping up into my Facebook feed. So it just looks like she has such a cool job. So we chat a lot about what she does, and she actually does have a job where she gets to go outdoors a lot. So if you're interested in having an outdoors job, then this is definitely a podcast interview to listen to. But we also talk about her trajectory to get to a permanent job and how it wasn't so straightforward even with a master's degree. So I think a lot of you will feel really encouraged listening to this and about just how much Rebecca persevered so that she was able to get a permanent job, which she loves right now. Before we get started, I just wanted to talk about a new program that I am running and I need some founding members to help me co-create this project. It is for kids around ages of 8 to 12 and their parents. And the goal of this program is to get outside, get connected to nature, and get them learning about wildlife and nature by using real wildlife biology activities that we do as scientists so that they can learn about science, the process of science. It's so often in school, you're just you're just memorizing facts or just learning about animals, like what's this part called and what this animal does. But in this program, kids are really going to be learning what science is, and this will help them become more informed and more critical thinkers as, as citizens when they grow up. A big component of this program is to also get kids outside so we can get them off of their devices and interacting in nature which provides so many mental health, physical health benefits. I know that parents out there are struggling with what to do with their kids since the pandemic. Well, this program has got you covered. We're going to come up with really fun activities for kids to do. If you can't always go outside, that's okay. We're going to have virtual activities as well, virtual alternatives. We are going to interact as a group. You're going to interact with me as a scientist. I am just so excited for this program. So if you're interested, just head over to fancyscientist.com and you should see a tab for Kids Wildlife Program. You can sign up there and get some more information. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Like in stone, set in stone. Okay. Okay. I see the recording button. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're recording now. There's no turning back now. Well, hi, Rebecca. It is so good to have you on the podcast and to see you again. I'm so excited to talk to you about your job. Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm, I'm glad you invited me. I like I like talking about this stuff. So we had, when were we last together? In 2000 and 
11, probably. I think you left before me, right? Well, we saw each other at the Wildlife Society Conference in 2016, I think, in, in Raleigh. Yeah. That was the last time I saw you, though. And so since then, you've, I've mostly seen pictures of Montana. And you have had a lot of cool, like, ungulate pictures. And I've seen you talk about cougar kills, going to cougar kill sites. So you are a wildlife biologist for the Bitterroot area for the Montana Fish and Wildlife, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. It's a state yeah. agency there. <laughs> Can you tell us like what your job is all about? Like what, and what do you, what do you do on like a day-to-day basis? Sure. So in, in the broadest sense, my job is managing big game or game animals, you know, animals that we hunt, animals that we trap. That's kind of my job to to just take care of that and survey the animals, make sure our populations are doing well, and then uh, manage the hunting regulations for those animals. So that's like the bulk of my job. And day to day, it can be really varied, which is one of the reasons I really like it. So, you know, certain times of the year we're surveying, usually winter and spring, we're in in an airplane or a helicopter and we're counting, you know, counting the elk, counting the mule deer, counting the bighorn sheep, Mountain goats, we, you know, I've got a mountain goat population we try to keep tabs on. There are times of the year it's, you know, it's hunting season and I have a check station I have to run. So I sit there and, and, you know, see all these animals being harvested coming through and we, we age them. We look at their teeth and estimate how old those animals are to kind of keep tabs on, you know, the health of that population. Like if you end up with a whole bunch of old animals coming out, then that means, something's going on with reproduction. We haven't had a lot of reproduction. There's no young animals in the population. So things like that, we, we you know, keep an eye on and, and it helps us inform our hunting regulations. So, so those two things, the harvest management and the surveying are, you know, most of what I do. And then we also do, we get to dabble in research. So we have a sort of research bureau that handles most of the applied you know, research with the universities, like, you know, a particular bighorn sheep herd. Is it, how is it moving? How is it using the habitat? Elk, we, we've had some big elk projects going on in my area recently, and I get to help with that too. So as those come up, I can play a big role in helping with the organization, writing stuff up, you know, writing reports, answering questions from the public, and then actually helping, you know, catch animals and and all that stuff. So that's, that's a fun part. It's not a huge part. It just depends on kind of what's going on at the time. And then I get to deal with urban wildlife, which is also because I live in, I live in a kind of a small town, but it's the main town here in the Bitter Valley. And most recently we had moose coming into town and like camping out and not leaving. And so I, I had to help catch a moose and move it. <laughs> so Wow. So we have to deal with that from time to time as well. So it, it's a really varied job. You know, things come up that you have to deal with. I help the game wardens sometimes when they have issues. So yeah, each day is kind of a little bit different. How did you catch the moose? What did you do? We darted it. So it was a calf and it was really habituated. So our I, we had a specialist, a capture specialist come in. He literally walked within, you know, 20 feet of it and shot it with a dart gun. (laughs) And then it kind of wandered around for a little bit and went to sleep and we put it in a horse trailer and we moved it out of town. Where was the the mom? We don't know. So there's been, there's been a lot of calves that there were actually two calves in town. And one of them, unfortunately had been hit by a car a couple of days previously. Mm. The third one showed up last week that we had to deal with and move that one as well. So I don't, 
I don't know what's happened to these moms. If, if they're maybe one of them got hit by a car on the highway and orphaned these calves, maybe they just got separated. A lot of times cows will bring their calves into town and then they'll get chased by a dog or something and mm-hmm. separated. So unfortunately it's hard to tell if that happens. There's, there's no great way for us to figure out, you know, which calf goes with which cow and where's the cow even at, at any particular moment. So it's, it was tricky. And, you know, a six month old calf can survive on its own. It's not great, but we moved it to a place where it would, you know, it could stay away from people. So, so hopefully, hopefully it'll make it, but just wasn't a good situation. And people were feeding it, you know, that's never oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and then do you put a, a tag on it so you can at least identify it later or, or. Yeah, we, we gave it an ear tag, which mm-hmm. is requirement whenever we drug an animal it has to get an ear tag because if you know if someone hit that moose on the highway a couple of days later they wouldn't be able to salvage it for food because of the drugs in its system so but yeah then the ear tag also helps us if, if it comes back to town which it might um we'll be like hey it's that moose that we already moved yeah. on. <laughs> so yeah that's so cool so can you tell us more about the surveys so you are sorry can you hear me okay Okay. Sorry. Just something, a glitch happened on my computer. <laughs> I was wondering if something happened. So yeah. Tell us like what the surveys are like. So you, you go in like a small airplane or a helicopter and then you fly over and are you literally just counting ungulates from the plane? Is that what you do like all day long when you do do a survey? Yeah. So it, it varies. It really varies on the species because of their behavior. And so, so elk is the one that I spend the most time on. We have about 8,000 elk here in the Bitterroot. And so we count them in a super cub, which is a small, a very small airplane. And it takes us about two months and we fly like first thing in the morning for a couple hours. And then last thing in the evening for a couple hours when the elk are out, because during the day they'll, you know, they'll hide under the timber and you can't find them. So, so it takes us, it takes us a while to cover the whole area. And that is, is we call it a full coverage survey where we just count everything we can. It's not like a trend. It's not like we're doing transects. We're just flying all the winter range where the elk are and counting everything. <laughs> so it, it takes a while. That's that's really the only thing I do in the plane. And then everything else I have to do in a helicopter. So mule deer, you know, mule deer we have to do in a helicopter here because of the landscape. And, you know, the analogy that people use when you're flying over mule deer is like you're counting popcorn as it pops. <laughs> so you you find a mule deer herd and you get close to it and they just scatter in all directions. They just go. And then you can't, like, if you're in a plane, there's no way you can maneuver well enough to be able to count them all before they're just gone. So in the helicopter, we can sort of like hover really far away and try to count them and then come in and classify them, count the bucks and the does before they scatter. And then we can sort of try to herd them in a, in a direction so that they don't, you know, go to a place we haven't counted yet. So, so we have to do that in the helicopter and that just takes a couple of days. We only survey one area for a trend and then that's it. So we're, we just do that for like one full day or two half days and then we're done with that. But we do it twice a year. We do that one post, we call it a post-season count where we're counting the bucks and does, getting buck to doe ratios. And then we do another count in the spring to get a, like a better full census count or trend for that area. So, and by then bucks have dropped their antlers and so we can't really tell the bucks apart. The other animals I do are bighorn sheep. So that's also in a helicopter, just again, because of their behavior. A lot of times you fly over a bighorn sheep herd and they hide under timber (laughs) and you literally have to like 
bring the helicopter in and scare them out because they'll just sit there. They won't, they won't leave. So, so we do that in the spring and that's, I only have three herds and they're pretty small herds. And so that just takes like half a day to count them. And then the mountain goats, which is my least favorite survey to do because it's freaking scary. We're flying in the bitter mountains, which are along the Idaho border here, really, really rugged terrain. I mean, great mountain goat habitat. And you know, if something goes wrong, you ain't landing anywhere. There's nowhere to land. So I, I do not like that survey. It is cool. I mean, mountain goats are awesome, but I don't enjoy doing that in a helicopter. And incidentally, I had some colleagues in Texas that I, I used to work for Texas Parks and Wildlife and, and some colleagues that I worked with died in a helicopter crash in August doing a bighorn sheep survey. Oh, wow. Always kind of on our minds whenever we are doing wildlife surveys is just the, the chance that something could go wrong. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. Isn't it hard to see the goats from a helicopter? I remember, I, I think I was, I think I was in Utah and we were looking at mountain goats and somebody else saw it and I couldn't see it. Like it blended in so well. So are you able to easily pick them off and count them? Well, that's an interesting question because my, we don't know. It, it really depends on the habitat. So if you have a habitat that has a lot of like nooks and crannies and rock outcrops and places that goats can hide, you can miss a lot of them because kind of like sheep, sometimes they'll hide, they'll hear you coming and they'll hide. And then you, so there's other habitats where it's, it's more open. There's not as many places for them to hide. And so, yeah, you can get a decent count from the air. The bitter roots are tough. My experience has been it's, it's tough. And we have traditionally done our surveys in the winter for the sole reason that you can see tracks. So you might think that, oh, you're looking for a white animal in the snow, like that doesn't make any sense. But then they, you know, if, if you can survey, especially after a fresh snow, you just look for tracks and then you can follow the tracks and find the goat. And so it's kind of the best way to do it that we have tried to date. I'm actually trying to do a, a ground count for the first time in the winter see if there's any possibility that, you know, people just hiking the trails can look up at the canyons and see the goats just in the idea that, you know, they're not hiding from the helicopter because <laughs> there's, it's not a helicopter. It's just people walking, looking for them. So it may be a total failure. It may work. We don't know, but we're going to try that on Friday for this, this coming weekend. Does, does the public hike that area at all, or is it too inaccessible? Yes. They're all I wonder if you can engage citizen scientists to help you out. Too. I am. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I, I actually am. So I've got, I've got a group of locals that are going to go up because we're going to try to hit all these canyons, like in a three-day period. So I've got a group of local folks that have uh, worked with citizen science projects before for like wolverines, looking for wolverines in the canyon. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a group called the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance that has been, they're kind of a new group that, that uh, this is what they do. They, they have a network of volunteers across the country who show up to do these, these goat surveys when, when they're needed. So they have, they told me they have about 30 volunteers coming to help as well. So, so yeah, lots of, lots of volunteers. And can you recognize the goats individually? Like if you have good pictures of them or, or not really? Um, pro probably not just because the, the habitat they're in is so expansive. You, you're not yeah. A good enough look at them. So I'm more interested in just a count. Um, probably not even going to be able to classify them into billies or nannies. Kids, if I can get kid counts, that would be great. But I, I'm not, I'm not expecting the public. I mean, it's hard for biologists to tell males and females apart sometimes. So I'm not expecting volunteers to be able to. It's really hard. The females are called nannies. 
Yeah, Billy's nannies <laughs> and kids, <laughs> just like goats, just like regular goats. I guess I don't have a lot of experience with goats, so I, I mean, yeah, I knew they're Billy goats and kids, but I guess I never thought about the female goats. But that's, yeah, that's fun. Has is your is your state agency? Has they thought about using drones at all for these counts, or is it is the technology still not there yet? We've we've tried it. In fact, my one of my colleagues who is the biologist. For- Zula area. So she has some mule deer that she's been trying to survey and she's always had a heck of a time finding them because her area is really, really timbered, much more timbered than my area. And she took out a drone a couple of weeks ago and tried to count that, that group. And she got a little, she got some of it counted and then they crashed the drone. <laughs> so she, she actually thinks an eagle took it out, which apparently that's the thing that eagles will see drones and get them and like knock them out of the air. Wow. Oh, she thinks that happened. But anyway, I, I think that there's a lot of potential there and we are looking at it as an agency for, it's just for the limitations in my mind are the range. Like yeah. if, if I could explain like the, the canyons in the Bitter Valley, they're, they're really wide and they're really tall and there's lots of rock outcrops and little crannies and stuff. And I just, you know, if you're standing in the Canyon bottom and you're trying to fly a drone up into those Canyon wall, to look for goats. I just don't know if the range is going to be good enough. Like you'd have to walk the entire canyon. Um, you know, I think most of these drones only work like half a mile away from you. So, yeah. So you know, hopefully, the technology will get better, and we'll have other other opportunities. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I know someone in our lab was uh, working with drone research as well in Namibia and there were definitely challenges with that. And he was working to like create his own drones to be able to go farther. And there are lots of crashes. Yeah. I mean, if we could get one of those like half a million dollar military drones <laughs> that yeah. has like, head, like that would be awesome. You could just sit there in my <laughs> office and like pilot it and not even have to be out there, you know, but that's, that's probably never going to happen. <laughs> so if there's any people out there with a lot of money and you are looking for a good cause, you can donate yeah. a drone. Give us one of um, them humongous drone things. And so it sounds like you spend a lot of time outdoors in your job. Is that true? And could you, could you give us a, like a percentage of how much time you spend outdoors versus indoors? Yeah. So it, it varies again, it varies by season. And if you count surveys, being outdoors because I'm in a plane. <laughs> I mean, I would say maybe half of my time I'm, I'm out in the field in one way or another, either doing surveys or running the check station, which takes up pretty much all my time during hunting season, you know, in the summertime. So, so summer, oddly enough, summer is kind of our slow time. Every other job I've had summer has been the busy time. That's the field season, but yeah. here we don't, we don't usually have a lot happening in the summer unless we have some research projects going on. So I spend a lot of time just getting out and backpacking and checking out the habitat and kind of looking to see how, how wildlife are using certain areas and looking to see if there's a lot of calves or fawns being born. It's not really, it's, it's hard to say what job, part of my job description that is. It's just sort of keeping tabs on things. <laughs> how, how do things look? How's the green up going? How's the moisture in the mountains? Um, all things that are going to affect the wildlife populations. So I do a lot of that in the summer and, and it's great, you know, I mean, you get paid to, to go backpacking and hiking in the mountains, which is great. So, but yeah, there's also, you know, there's a lot of meetings, there's a lot of report writing, there's a lot of proposal writing, there's a lot of meetings, there's more meetings, there's conferences, you know, so there is a lot of office work too, and a lot of 
answering the phone and taking hunter phone calls and, and answering their questions. And there's a lot of that. What about data analysis? Do you, do you work a lot with the numbers that you collect from the surveys and other research you do? Not really, which I guess I found a little surprising. This isn't really a data analysis heavy job. You, you know, obviously there's simple things like graphing trend surveys with mm-hmm. how many animals you counted year to year, calculating really simple things like buck to doe ratios and calf to cow ratios and, and things like that. Like it's, it's all been pretty simple, which is a little disappointing to me because I've forgotten a lot of the things I learned in grad because <laughs> I don't use them very often. Yeah. And so there is opportunity, you know, to, to do more stuff like that. So I volunteered to try to crunch some numbers um, related to radio caller effectiveness and it's, it's kind of been sitting on my desk for like a year now. I haven't been working on it just because it's, it's, I feel like it's hard for me to get back into that data analysis mindset. So, and it changes so fast too. Yeah. I know with the, the tracking data that there's just so many different ways now to analyze it now because the technology has changed. So is that data analysis because your, your department just like, like they don't prioritize that they have to do so many other things that they just need the basic graphs and stuff or is somebody else doing that? Well, so it, it, it depends. So for my job, what's really important are the trends and the calf to cow ratios and things like that. That's important because that's how we, part of how we set hunting regulations is, you know, what's the population doing? How was reproduction? Was reproduction good? Great. You can up a quota on something. So, so for my job, you know, I really don't need to, to do the more advanced kind of data analyses. Mm-hmm. Part of the, you know, part of that too is that we we have a research bureau. And so we have PhDs whose job it is. Like we have, I think, four in the state. And their job is kind of more to do those more in-depth examinations of population data and you know radio caller data and that kind of thing. And that's usually working with the university with Mon- Montana State or University of Montana. So it's so it is kind of separate. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I have the they encourage us to do that sort of thing and to be more involved and to learn. And there's more, there's a lot more development occurring with, you know, integrated population models, which are, you know, taking, taking various data and modeling, you know, modeling populations into the future with that data, which were, it's come a long way. And FWP has several projects like that kind of underway, one with mountain lions to try to determine mountain lion population size, and then other, you know, ones for elk um, and mule deer. So it is being done right now. It's just not a big part of my job. Yeah. And that's taking data from different sources to like yeah. camera traps and hunter harvest and things like that. Yeah. Mostly aerial surveys and hunter harvest. And then Idaho. So Idaho Fish and Game has been working on some big projects trying to determine population size with, with camera traps. Um, and there's a lot of promise in that. And especially for timbered, timbered habitats where, where aerial surveys just aren't as effective. There's too many trees. You can't see what's under the trees. And so that's, that's definitely being looked at for, you know, for getting better estimates of population size. So can you tell us how you got this job, your journey to becoming a wildlife biologist? (laughs) Sure. How much time you got? You can take as much time as you want. (laughs) People, I think people are really interested in, in hearing this because I mean, this is the reason why I like blogging about it and talking in it about it so much. Cause there's no, like, there's no like 
book, like when you go to medical school, like you go, you go, you get your degree and, you know, pre-med or biology or whatever. And then you take this exam and then you go to medical school and then you do your residency. Like there's a prescribed step, but this it's like all over the place. So I think people like to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's, 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 you know, a lot of things happened that I didn't plan for and, and really frustrating things that happened. And I'll I'll try to just go best I can, but I, I did not know that I wanted to do this when I went to college. I I was really kind of lazy about education and like really well in high school. And people were like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. I like animals. (laughs) So um, my, my, I was in Texas and my dad actually found a program in Idaho. He was like, Hey, you can major in wildlife in Idaho. And I was like, really? So, so I applied to Idaho. It was the only place I applied to and got accepted there. So I went to university of Idaho and got my bachelor's in wildlife resources And, you know, generally when you're doing your bachelor's, you try to do summer jobs and get some experience working for graduate students, or, you know, if you can get into the pathways program for the forest service or the fish and wildlife service, that was like awesome. If you could get that, it was super competitive. Basically those jobs, you do summer internships. And then once you're graduated, they give you a job, like then you're hired um, by a federal agency. So I I tried to do that and I failed. (laughs) I did not get accepted to that. So after I graduated, I kind of had, I had several like identity, or not identity crises, but just, I, I had several instances in my life where I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't think I wanted to do wildlife anymore. One that came right after grad school or right after undergrad, I had a job for like two weeks working on sage grouse and I hated it and I quit. And I went back to Texas and I worked at Barnes and Noble for six months <laughs> and with my dad. That was right after graduation. And I was putting in for jobs all over. I thought about going to med school actually and getting like a you know post-baccalaureate med degree to do that. I thought about law school, but then, you know, I got hired on this job in Southern California, working with bobcats and coyotes in Orange County, in urban Orange County. And so I moved over there and I did that for about like seven or eight months. And then I kind of started this, this uh, moving from job to job, doing the itinerant wildlife biologist technician thing for a while. So mm-hmm. after California, I went to Yellowstone National Park for two months and worked on grizzly bears. I didn't get to catch any. I just was tracking them and looking at what they were eating. Then I went back to California and did the same bobcat coyote work for like three months. Then I went to New Mexico in Arizona and I worked for the um, Mexican wolf reintroduction project down in Alpine, Arizona um, for six months. And then I went to grad school. So, so throughout that time, you know, you're working these tech jobs and you're getting experience and you're, you're kind of honing what you think you want to do with your life. And I really wanted to work with carnivores, specifically wolves. That was my, that was kind of always my goal. I wanted to be a wolf biologist. Unfortunately, it wasn't really in the cards. The, the wolf jobs that I really wanted, I never got because they're, they're so competitive. The Mexican wolf job, I did get that one, but it didn't really, it wasn't really what I thought it was going to be. And it was really, it was like the most depressing job that I've ever had. You know, imagine studying an animal and people poaching them like all the time. You, you yeah. catch shot and everybody hates them. Like, and then the people that you're working with are just so depressed all the time. Anyway, so that was my first foray into actually working with wolves and it just wasn't what I thought. So, 
so I, you know, I had wanted, I had made the decision that I wanted to go to grad school because that was sort of the accepted, like, this is what you do. If you want to get a permanent job in wildlife that pays anything, you really need a graduate degree. So I started looking at grad schools. I applied to two and I got accepted to University of Missouri, which is of course where I met you. <laughs> so I worked on, I worked on river otters. It was not a field-based job, which I didn't know coming into it. It was a lab-based job. I was doing genetic analyses and extracting DNA which turned out to be really fun, more fun than I thought. So I did that for two years and then got, got a couple papers published out of it right after graduation. Oh yeah. So my last semester of grad school, I had another like identity crisis and I almost joined, I almost joined the FBI as a special agent. And so I actually got really close to being hired as a special agent. And then I don't know if anyone remembers in 2010, there was a high federal hiring freeze. So everything federally just shut down. And that was right when I was in that process. So, so I did not become an FBI special agent, but I did get hired on as another technician job for mountain lions in Colorado. And I did that for six months. Oh, then I went back to Missouri and worked in the lab for three months. And then I went to South Dakota and I worked on woodpeckers for three months. And then I went back to Missouri and worked in the lab as the lab manager for a little under a year. Then I went to Honduras and volunteered as a, a camp leader doing some genetic analyses at a base camp in the cloud forest, which was cool. And then I joined the Peace Corps because I was having more identity crises, I guess. So I joined the Peace Corps. I wanted them to send me to like Nepal or Ukraine or like somewhere cold because I grew up in Texas and Arizona and I don't like hot weather. They sent me to Mexico, which was not what I really wanted. And then I started getting chronically sick in Mexico. So I quit the Peace Corps. I'm one of the, they, you know, one third of Peace Corps people quit before their time. So I'm one of them. That's rough. Quit the Peace Corps. Went back to Texas, lived with my dad again and worked at Starbucks. So I had a master's degree and I was working at Starbucks and getting paid like $7.50 an hour with tips for six months. I did that. And I ended up, I remember I was getting so depressed and I, I sent an email to Texas Parks and Wildlife and I said, hey, look, I have a master's in wildlife. I just want to volunteer. Are there any projects around here that I can volunteer with? And I guess that made an impression with someone because they said, no, but there's jobs coming open in West Texas. And they encouraged me to apply. And I did. And I got hired. My first ever permanent wildlife biologist job working for Texas Parks and Wildlife. Vegas County, which is kind of by El Paso. <clears throat> so yeah, the desert and the Chihuahuan Desert, pretty low human population, really cool. Lots of wildlife. There were pronghorn, there were mule deer, white-tailed deer bighorn sheep out there. And so that was really my first, that was the first time I ever worked with ungulates. I still, I'm not sure why they hired me because I had no deer experience and no sheep or pronghorn experience, but they hired me and I learned a ton. That, that was really my foot in the door to get the job I have now was working out there. Kind of a horrible place to live in, in just, there's not much like social activity. The, the towns were all really small, just not a whole lot to do. You know, Texas is all private land. So you can't just like go hiking if you want to, because it's private. So I worked that job for like a year and a half. And then the, this job in Montana came open and I applied for it and I got it. And I still kind of can't believe it, <laughs> but. Uh, wow. I can't, I, I actually didn't realize you had so much experience <laughs> at all these different jobs. And you've been working with at Montana for what four or five years? Hold on, my dog is like throwing. Up. <laughs> Do you need to pause? I think she's okay. <laughs> so she throws up. It's not that big of a deal. Sorry. Um, what did you just ask me? 
what did I just ask you? I guess I didn't realize you had so many, so much oh, yeah. different experience. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm really surprised by that. I mean, I knew you had different tech positions and stuff, but I didn't realize you moved around that much and that a lot of the tech positions were, were only what, like two or three months long. And then you had to move again. Yeah. The most of them were about six months. And, and the reason for that is because a lot of states, when you're working as a technician for a state agency, if they, if they hire you for longer than six months, they have to start paying you benefits. And so they don't yeah. want to do so after six months, they make you leave. <laughs> so, which was frustrating, but yeah. So most of the jobs I had were about six months long. Some were shorter. So were you okay with moving around that much? Like, did you like that or did, did you, did, did you hate it? Was it hard for you? I, I liked it. You know, I, I don't have, I never had like a boyfriend or husband that I had to worry about. I didn't have any pets back then. And it, it was kind of an adventure. You just pack up all your crap and drive my little Honda to the next, the next job. And I mean, I got to see so much country and I got to do a lot of really cool stuff. And, you know, it, it was stressful. Not having health benefits was probably the most stressful part, you know, because that was before the whole mandatory, you know, mandate thing and pre-existing conditions. You, like I, I had a heck of a time getting health insurance and paying for health insurance because I had allergies. Like they, they would make me sign a waiver, like, oh, you can't be covered for any allergy related thing because you have that pre-existing condition. And yeah. it was so, so that, that was, I honestly might've kept doing the technician thing for longer because it was fun. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. cool stuff. You don't get paid a lot, but it's really fun except for the health benefits thing. I was like, you know what? I want, I want health coverage. (laughs) Yeah. That was most, mostly the impetus for me wanting to get a permanent job, I guess. Why didn't you like your, your first job, the sage grouse job? I think it was because I, I really wanted to get more experience with capture and handling. You know, that's Mm -hmm. of course the second part of being a wildlife biologist is catching stuff and doing that. And, and I thought that was what the job was going to be. And I showed up and it was vegetation sampling. It was driving around mm-hmm. the middle of nowhere, like counting sagebrush, which is important stuff. And, you know, a lot of people like doing that. I just didn't want to. I, I also, I also had a really bad attitude. I just, I, I, I think I was kind of proud and I didn't want to stoop so low as to have to do vegetation work. And so it was, a lot of it was my fault. And again, I was kind of having this identity crisis and not sure that it's what I wanted to even do. So, so yeah, that was why I quit. It was also, I have other friends that were in that job and it was kind of a negative environment, which you get a lot with these wildlife jobs. You get a lot mm-hmm. of who are really stressed out and, you know, they, they don't want to have to train people to do work and, and they, you know, you end up kind of being like, you're the low person on the totem pole. You're you're easily kicked around and not treated very well when you're a technician sometimes. And, and that, that was kind of the case on that job as well. So just a lot of things that just made it like, no, I don't think I'm going to stay here. Did you mostly go to graduate school because you were having a hard time getting a job, a permanent job with a bachelor's degree, or I don't, I don't even know, were you trying to apply for permanent jobs at that time? Or was it just something that you, that you really wanted to do? I, I honestly don't remember I'm sure I applied for jobs as they came open. I think there just weren't that many. There weren't that many open. So this was 2008 when I went to grad school and that was right in the middle of our financial crisis. Jobs were hard to find, you know, graduate opportunities were hard to find. There just wasn't any money anywhere. And so I think, I think I kind of figured, well, grad school might be the best place to be right now because there just aren't any jobs. So that might've been the decision. And and I just, 
I certainly never got any permanent job offers without my graduate degree, but I just don't remember even applying for any, to be honest. Yeah, I get the sense that it's really difficult to get a permanent job with a bachelor's nowadays, but I've I never, I guess I never looked for a permanent job because I always knew I was going to go to graduate school. So even when I had a bachelor's and took some time off, I, I applied to internships and temporary positions. Yeah. Dog okay. We're, we're, yeah. We'll wrap this up soon. Oh no, she's, <laughs> she's fine. She just, I think she just got about her bone that she's eating over there. So no, but I, I, the only time that I have seen, you know, people who, who don't have graduate degrees, who have permanent jobs, there's one that works for us right now. He's our wolf specialist. Those, those people got those opportunities because they worked up from the bottom. They started out as a volunteer working for, you know, like Tyler Parks is the name of our wolf specialist. And he started out as a volunteer working for Liz Bradley catching wolves during the summer. And then over time, you know, he did that more and more and he got really, really good at it and was really trustworthy and she knew him and, him and, and, you know, he, he got hired on then as the wolf technician. So that's a step up. So he was getting paid now to, to work that job. And then when Liz Bradley got a different job and the wolf specialist position came open, he applied for it. And then of course, even though he didn't have a graduate degree, by the time he applied, he was extremely competitive. I mean, he knew the area, he knew yeah. wolf packs. And so it was sort of like a given that, yeah, that we're going to hire him. So, so if you have the patience and you have the ability financially to, to do that, to stay at a job and maybe not get paid for a couple of years, there's always the chance that something's going to open up within you know, within that job at a higher up level. So, and like you said, they want to, they want to hire people who can hit the ground running and who already know what they're doing. So in that case, like it was good that he didn't move around to different positions because Mm -hmm. like you said, he knew the area really well and the wolves really well. When you were in Orange County, did you see the Real Housewives at all? No, I don't. I guess that was in 2007. Was that around back then? I think they were around then. The the Orange County one franchise has been going on for a long time. I think they were still there. I don't, I don't remember that one, but I remember Laguna Beach. I remember that show. And and every time, and I actually had to work in Laguna Beach sometimes. And every time I would go to Laguna Beach, I would feel like, or like a rock star. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in Laguna Beach. It sounds that, yeah, I would love to work in orange was it was it really like ritzy and stuff like they show on tv oh my gosh yeah i mean it irvine like i i was kind of based in irvine that was where we spent most of our time uh-huh. newport beach and then laguna beach and so yeah like we were studying bobcats urban bobcats and coyotes and i remember one time there was a, a collared bobcat that had babies in someone's backyard and and we wanted to you know document it and so we show up and it's like this freaking mansion in <laughs> Pelican Hills, I think it was what it was called. And there's just all these ginormous mansions and they invited us inside and it was like, oh my gosh, I'm in like, this is like royalty. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I would always, I would always joke nice. with Roland and say that I, I wanted to study urban wildlife and like Beverly Hills <laughs> and cause they're all the urban wildlife is becoming braver and stuff. So you see coyotes like in the middle of the day and stuff. I guess one more question I have for you is why do you think you kept on having identity crisis crises? Was it was it related to being a wildlife biologist, or it had nothing to do with that? I think I don't think it really had to do with being a wildlife biologist. I think it was two things. It was not being able to get a job. So I had yeah. identity crises a lot when I wasn't able to get a job, and I'm like, why am I doing this if I can't work? <laughs> so that was a big thing. And then the second thing I think was just being young. You know, I what, what's the the fact that you, your brain doesn't stop developing until you're 25. So, you know, 
if, if you're an 18 year old and you know exactly what you want to do, awesome, do it. But I think most 18 year olds have no clue. <laughs> and like I said, I was lazy about college. I really didn't think it through. I, I didn't have big plans. You know, I wasn't done maturing. In fact, I think I matured a lot later than most people. So I think it was, it was just, I, I was kind of, I had some like, I would get depressed and, and I would watch movies that made, like I watched, I think the dark Knight came out, you know, when I was in college and I was like, I want to be Batman. I want to like make a difference and save people's lives. <laughs> and so, so a lot of it was just having to find my place in the world and find something, some, find where I could fit in, which, you know, when you can't get a job in wildlife biology for a while, you think, well, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. But then every time I would, at the last second, I would get a job and it would go on. So, so yeah, if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, I think people have this continuation where they evolve in their job or even change their job. And, you know, like I think of my parents' generation, they just like, you know, went to a, a business or a factory or whatever and worked there or company and you worked there your whole life. But now I think so many people have that that, what is the word I'm looking for? They have that, I don't know, self-awareness at different points in their life. And they, and they question like, what do they really want out of life? I mean, I know I had that with my career transition too, with doing, Mm -hmm. when I struggled with getting a job too, I was like, you know, do I really love research? Do I want this type of job? And so, yeah, I think it's normal. So what, what advice would you give to somebody who is, who wants a job like you, where you get to be 50% in the field in Montana and get to see ungulates from helicopter? I guess the best advice would be volunteer. Yeah. Which I know, you know, especially if you're in school and you have opportunities to volunteer on the weekends or like our check station is run on the weekends, you know, do that stuff because it, you know, especially if you do a good job and you have a good work ethic and you show up on time and you are really interested in what you're doing, then person will write you a recommendation letter someday that might be what pushes you over the edge into getting a job versus not getting a job. And so, you know, unfortunately you can say it's an unfortunate thing that, you know, there's a lot of kind of incestuousness within wildlife biology. There's a lot of who, you know, and networking and, like everyone seems to know everyone and, you know, it can be hard to break into that world, especially if you don't come from it, especially if you don't, you know, have a dad that worked in the agency, which happens a lot. So, so volunteering is sometimes the best way to, to do that. And then doing a good job, like just having a good work ethic and having a good attitude is so important. So that would be my best advice, I guess. And I know there's a lot of controversy about of wildlife jobs don't pay or and sometimes you have to pay like you have to pay your own food mm-hmm. housing to do a job that they, they're not going to pay you for and there's a lot of people that say that's not right and I, I kind of agree it's not right but there's just so many people who can do that and it, it makes it hard it makes it competitive especially if you have financial limitations so you know look for, look for grant opportunities funding opportunities if you don't have the money like i i, I did that once in college I, I had a summer internship that didn't pay and i applied for like an extra grant to help pay for living expenses while i did that job so there is some of that out there so that's my best advice just you know do and and, and do as much as you can like get as many experiences as you can to to see what it is you actually have the most passion for so 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, unfortunately. And I was talking to Laura in one episode, Laura Marsh of Nova Conservation. And, you know, we kind of felt bad saying that because it does exclude so many people. But I, mm-hmm. I don't think you can get a job with a bachelor's without volunteering. I really, I really don't, unless you have like, unless you're coming from like a really strong wildlife degree program, even then I still think you would need to volunteer in a lab with a professor at the university to get experience. Because like you said, even these tech experiences, they want people with experience already who know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So it needs to change, but it's the way it is right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even if you don't have the experience, like as long as you have someone who can really vouch for your, your work yeah. ethic, passion, like that's, that can be huge too. And I think that that's what got me my first couple of jobs maybe was just because I, I was punctual and I, you know, I showed up, I got good grades in college. I think that was one thing. If I, if I wouldn't have gotten good grades, I, I wouldn't have been, <laughs> I think I would have had a harder time. So Well, thank you so much. And it was great chatting with you. I'm glad to see you so happy and with a permanent job. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, it's, it was worth. Yes. Thank you once again, Rebecca, for coming on the podcast. I had such a great time chatting with you. If you want to find Rebecca, you can find her on Twitter. She is at Beck of the Yukon, B-E-C-K of the Yukon, Y-U-K-O-N. A couple of things that I wanted to highlight before we go is that when Rebecca had a hard time finding a job, she reached out to the the Texas Parks Department. She asked them specifically if there was anything that she could do, even though she didn't have a job, even though there wasn't a job posting or she didn't see anything particular, she reached out and then that eventually led to her first permanent job. So don't be afraid to reach out. The second thing I wanted to mention is that one of the jobs that Rebecca qualified for or that that she applied for, she mentioned that she didn't have any ungulate experience and that that's why she didn't get get that job. It's funny now because now she actually works on ungulates. But I just wanted to bring that up because I really want to emphasize that even though you have a degree, they're looking for that specific experience. Like she said, they want people who hit the ground running, who are ready to get started know what to do. So the earlier that you can figure out what you want to do and get that experience, the more competitive you'll be. So I have this tool. It's a spreadsheet where you can organize jobs and figure out exactly what you want to do. It's called the job tracker. If you go to fancyscientist.com and just Google or just search for job tracker, you'll find it. And this will help you understand the jobs that are out there so that you can eventually figure out what jobs you really want and then get the experience that you need to become competitive for them. Another thing that I just wanted to mention is if you're in college or going to college, make sure you develop strong relationships with your professors. I went to a state university where there were literally hundreds of people in a a lecture room, and it was really hard to get that one-on-one interaction. And actually, I didn't even know that it was valuable. I didn't realize that, I know this sounds silly, but that that I would need references later on. So if you're in a situation like that, make sure you go to office hours and get some personal interaction with um, professors so that you can have some people to vouch for you when you need those letters of recommendation. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you guys have an amazing day. Bye. 
If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.